2: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns,
3: opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It is Friday, as I record this, November 6th, 2020. I don't think I've ever spent... Uh, as many hours talking as I have in the last seven days or so. People who know me personally may know that I am not somebody who spends a lot of time in my life talking in any form. In fact, the amount of time that you spend listening to me talk on any given episode of WrestleNomics Radio, you may in fact be hearing me say more words in these roughly 60-minute episodes. More words than... Some of my close family members have heard me say in the entirety of the year of 2020. That notwithstanding, the Associated Press has yet to make a call, as of this recording, on just who the next President of the United States will be. Things not looking good for a close personal family friend of the McMahon family, as the chances of Andrew Yang having some influence in the federal government increase. But luckily wrestling fans in the United States have been trained for decades to appreciate the fine value of interminable contests that go on and on without any clear winner or loser. And there's a new article on WrestleNomics.com today that I have feelings about, as well as others. We'll get to those feelings. But first... This week, in wrestling business news, there's just really not a lot of big news headlines this week. I'll say it. There's no ad platforms here. The bigger news was last week, with the WWE Q3 report coming out. I have some follow-up on that. This week, Stephanie McMahon announced on Twitter that WWE has a new TV deal in Thailand to broadcast Raw and SmackDown on the network 3BB Sport 1. PW Insider has also learned that Stephanie McMahon, the Chief Brand Officer for WWE, has taken on another role within the company as she takes over supervision of the Global Sales and Partnerships Department, an area that includes matters like sponsorships and other business relationships. Reportedly, she took on this role beginning in August. WWE Executive Vice President John Brody, who works in that area, is still working there, and now reports to Stephanie. By the way, speaking of WTV de- deals in Thailand. WE's former broadcast partner in Thailand, CTH, just for some deep background of a uh, wrestling business history here, recent history. Thailand is the region where WWE was broadcasting through CTH, and CTH fell way behind on payments to WE for broadcast rights. And according to Law 360, WE was awarded back in 2016. They were awarded $23.8 million by a federal court in Connecticut because of the dispute. W uh, was alleging that CTH hadn't paid invoices going all the way back to the March of 2014. And I'm not aware to what extent W was able to collect on that $24 million judgment. But there you go. They've got a new partner in Thailand. Let me turn the gimmick voice off. It's a fine line between droning on monotonously and bouncing along like a phony dj but anyway so let's talk about one issue that is in the uh the area of hardcore financial ease but if you remember last week i was perplexed at how uh w was able to report operating expenses in its media division for q3 that was lower than q2 despite Q2 being entirely performance center production for Raw Smackdown on pay-per-views, and Q3 being half of performance center for that production, and half at the Thunderdome. But the Thunderdome obviously being more expensive than the performance center production values. How could a quarter that had half of the quarter happen with Thunderdome production be cheaper than the quarter that happened within the entire quarter being at the performance center? How is that possible? So it turns out there's something called production incentives, and I don't know exactly how they work, but it seems to be something that is, uh, given to a production company. In this case, WWE is given to the company to attract the company to do production in their region, state, even international governments, I understand do this. So I don't know exactly what, what government uh, gave them production incentives. Uh, WCFO, Christina Salen did make a comment to the effect that much of the production incentives that W was given was from the state of Connecticut, uh, which would make me think that the production incentives were related to production that happened in Connecticut, even though much of their production is happening in Florida. So I don't know how to sort that out. That notwithstanding, W did report uh, last Thursday that they received $18 million in production incentives, which lowered the amount that they otherwise would have reported as media operating expenses. And and really, I should have known about this. This was laid out in the 10Q in Q2, which came out back in late July. And if I had paid attention to the fine detail, which read, among other things, quote, we anticipate receiving approximately 15 million to 20 million of content production-related incentives during the remainder of the year. So adding this up to things that uh, were said on the Q3 call. So Christina Salen said that W receives a large amount of production incentives every Q3, in each Q3 of each year. This is normally when they receive a big jump in production incentives. Again, I don't know what the reason is for that. Is there some sort of schedule that makes it so that Q3 is the time when they do receive uh, a large amount in production incentives? And as I was going over my uh, spreadsheet where I do the W quarterly Financial estimates. I did have a note about this somewhere, but I failed to refer to it when I was actually running the numbers last time. So, what we end up having here in terms of operating expenses uh, for Q3, if you added in the $18 million that were apparently canceled out, I gather these are something like tax rebates, where maybe the local government gives you X amount of dollars or X amount of millions of dollars. That sort of refunds expenses that you, on, on things that you've already spent right here. And, and the the intent, uh, obviously, for the government is to attract certain productions to come to their local region and, and stimulate the economy, give people jobs, and things of that nature. So anyway, if you added the $18 million into the operating expenses just for, for theoretical uh, considerations about what Q3 would have cost without those production incentives... Basically, you add $18 million to $90 million, and you would end up with $108 million on the quarter for media operating expenses, which would be higher than the $99 million that they spent in Q2, which makes sense and gives us some impression that maybe the, you know, the Thunder Drum is, is still not that expensive relative to the Performance Center and certainly relative to the normal touring Raw Smackdown pay-per-view production format the pre-covid touring model so i have a a new table all laid out with the the q4 estimate i I will read the numbers the magic numbers to you now this will all be posted on rustlenomics.com next week sometime probably with some other text explaining why why it is what it is so the big headline i guess would be net income profitability i think that is the that is the most important number net income at this moment, I'm, I'm estimating net income in Q4 of $43 million. Oh, and, and big breaking news here. I am now estimating adjusted OEDA. Yes, I have, I have gone into the minutiae, and I have unpacked how adjusted OEBDA is calculated, and I am now making an estimate for adjusted OEDA as well. It's come to that. What is adjusted OEBDA, you ask? Well, adjusted OEBDA stands for adjusted Operating income before depreciation and amortization. But what is that? Well, you probably want to ask an accountant, but OEDA, never mind adjusted Oida, but just OEDA, I think of, from what I gather, is basically the earliest measurement of profit before various things are taken out of it. As, as you may hear me say on many occasions, there is not just one profit metric, but rather many different kinds of profit metrics. And the reason why there are many different kinds of profit metrics is because you can uh, say, well, what's the profit at this point before certain things are taken out? Okay, how about the middle point, this other middle point, and then the final number is net income, after all the taxes, and things of that nature are taken out. And I think the good analogy here is something that think people are uh, familiar with is their their paycheck, you have a gross pay before taxes and deductions and benefits are taken out. And then you have a net take home pay the, the the amount of money that you're actually able to cash out or that goes into your direct deposit that's kind of like net income, your net take home pay but anyway, what's adjusted Oibda so so w takes so I think of Oda as, as, as a as a really early measurement of profit, but w likes to talk about adjusted OEBda, which is sort of their own made up specialized profit metric where they get to rule out stock compensation. And certain other things that they just, in, in their own arbitrary wisdom, selectivity, they choose to, to rule out, I think, sort of the idea that this is a special non-recurring measure. And uh, we would like you to think about a profitability while ruling this thing that we don't want to consider while ruling that out. So there was an instance, usually W does not, uh, in most quarters, have anything in the line adjustments. They do have quite a bit of money almost every quarter sometimes it is a negative value but usually it is, it is a positive value they do report uh stock compensation which they rule out of adjusted OEBDA. five million dollars worth uh, in q3 but this quarter q3 the one that just passed actually they did uh put 5.5 million dollars in the adjustments that they're taking out of the adjusted oibda what is that 5.5 million dollars Let's go to the 10 Q. It says, are we reading from the 10 Q? Actually we are reading from the earnings press release, but I bet it's in the 10 Q also, but on page 14, it says, I, and I quote during the three and nine months ended September 30th, 2020, the company recorded 5.5 million in severance expense resulting from a reduction in force due to COVID-19. The company's policy is to include company-wide severance expense within corporate allocated general and administrative expenses, the company did not record any such expense during the three and nine months ended September 30th, 2019, end quote. So it's just the severance uh, expenses that are associated with the cost cutting that happened uh, on or around April 15th of this year. Not only were there furloughs, but there were a number of layoffs. And WB is uh, accounting that there's five and a half million dollars worth of severance expense associated with that, that they are. Ruling out of adjusted OIBDA. But anyway, I digress. I said $43 million in net income, the realest, most final profit metric. I think that's appropriate to say. I, I, I know there might be some smart accounting people who listen to this podcast. So if, if I'm mischaracterizing net income, please tell me so. Uh, but $43 million in net income would be a little bit lower. That's my Q4 estimate, $43 million, a little lower than $48 million in Q3 and almost exactly the same as the $44 million in Q2. But a Q4 with $43 million in net income would bring WWE's total net income for 2020 to $162 million. That would more than double last year's net income of $77 million. More than doubling the profitability of last year, 2019. Here in these challenging, unprecedented times... So I'm just thinking if there's any key things I'm modeling in here. I'm modeling in a slight decrease in uh, W Network, network uh, paid subscribers, which is normal for Q4. In the area of core content rights, the TV rights fees that drive so much of WB's business, we are now in Q4, which means we are now into year two of WB's TV deals with NBC Universal and Fox for Raw and SmackDown, respectively, which means... It is time for an upgrade. It is time for a contractually guaranteed escalation in WTV rights fees. So I'm modeling a 10% increase, roughly, compared to what they've done in previous quarters up to this point. There also is, because of the way the calendar works out, an extra episode of Raw in Q4. There are 14 episodes of Raw rather than the usual 13. So that is adding into it as well. We get to... About $146 million in core content rights fees for Q4. That is my estimate. And just to go briefly down the line here, uh, media ads and sponsorships, uh, that area seemed to be recovered in Q3. Hard for me to tell just how to deal with that. Uh, This this line is up. Ads and sponsors in the media division is up in previous Q4s. I would guess related to the increase in ad demand around the holidays. So it was $27.6 million uh, 2019 Q4. I'm modeling $27 million this Q4. And looking back on 2016, yes, there was even a strong Q2 in that presidential, Q4 rather, in that presidential election year. The other media segment, nothing too exciting there. Certainly not anticipating a Saudi event that would usually be reported in in that uh, segment. Expecting another uh, quarter of zero or very close to zero revenue in the live events division as the pandemic rages on. U.S. death count now at a quarter of a million, even despite the participation in what W board member and Barstool CEO, Erica Nardini calls, well, she says other people call it the coronavirus Olympics.
1: What I think some people call the uh, coronavirus Olympics, Which are the people who are out quarantining themselves, out safeguarding themselves, out protecting one another and making their worlds very, very small, letting fear dictate who they are and what they do. Um, For a lot of those people, that's with good reason, because they have health risks or because... There's, for a lot of good and reasonable reasons, afraid of what is happening out in the world right now. Uh, And then there's a group of people who my friend and I were talking about, which is I want to be around the people who are like, hey, everything's in play right now.
2: So Stephanie McMahon was on Erica Nardini's podcast, token CEO this week. That's how I caught that, although I have not caught a coronavirus as far as I know, the virus that is now approaching, having killed the same number of people who were killed in the last Six flu seasons combined. But I digress. Uh, I've heard that WWE may be thinking about doing an event with fans in attendance for Royal Rumble, which of course would be in January. I could see them doing that at an outdoor venue like a stadium uh, by January. Certainly most of the NFL stadiums will be not as busy. Uh, the major baseball stadiums as well. The, the, the problem though, the hang up, is that geez, if you, if you have fans there, are they going to have to wear masks? And uh, certain people at WWE just don't want fans to be seen on TV wearing masks. But back to oh, but it's a sign of weakness. Back to the uh, the estimate here. W Consumer Products revenues just modeling the usual increases in Q4 for licensing and for e-commerce uh, relative to the most recent quarter's performance. Of course, Q4 usually those 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 segments doing well. Uh, probably related to the holidays. So those are the revenues. That would be a revenue for Q4 of, where is it? $261 million for Q4. $261 million, which would bring W to a total revenue of $997 million, just short of $1 billion. You could round up, though, and say $1 billion. It's okay, Vince. Uh, I will spare you the reading off of numbers to describe how I calculated the, the cost related to the Thunderdome and the Capital Wrestling Center. Uh, I'll, I'll put that in writing uh, when this goes up on WrestleNomics.com. And I've even dipped into doing a full year 2021 estimate, modeling here uh, $185 million in that income for the full year of 2021, which would be up from my current estimate for the full year of 2020 of 162. So next year, estimating up to $185 million, breaking the record again for the company's profitability. And that assumes an entire year, again, with no live events, no live WrestleMania, which is kind of on the conservative side. A WrestleMania would make WWE have a more profitable year. But again, WrestleMania aside, live events don't do that much to WWE's profitability. In fact, it makes WWE's profitability a little bit lower. So, all elite wrestling has a pay per view this weekend, maybe today for some of you listening, or tonight rather. AW pay per views usually do around or maybe just under one hundred thousand buys. My belief, based on the hints that I've been given, my estimate is that AW uh, on pay per view last time for all out did about 90,000 buys. And my estimate is that the current high for AEW was double or nothing in May with about 105,000 buys. But this is fully full gear coming up on Saturday. And uh, last year I have an estimate of that pay-per-view doing 75,000 buys. So to estimate this stuff, I think we are all sort of doing a, a, a relative math problem Uh, we're doing algebra based on some hints that we've been given, and I think that's what's happening in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter as well. Wrestling Observer Newsletter will probably report a a pay-per-view buy number or estimate uh, shortly after this pay-per-view. I think the pay-per-view buy numbers that are reported in the Observer are a little bit higher than they actually are, but nobody here on the outside knows what the real numbers are. But we'll see uh, what comes out after this pay-per-view. Uh, more on stuff that's that is relevant to AEW and the U.S. wrestling industry generally. After this,
3: well, the goal of the goal of AEW, from an executive standpoint, from where I sit, is always to expand. Uh, that's to capture international audience, casual fans, lapsed fans, and just recently, the data she's she's referring to. Uh, a wonderful person here and I'll, I'll shout him out uh, Chris Harrington put together an intense spreadsheet and he color coded it for the ones of us who didn't go to college i.e. me uh, an intense spreadsheet on how well we were doing and how pointed the data was in terms of families and homes in terms of uh, 18 to 49 the actual youth of, of the United Kingdom and how plugged in they were that type of success hopefully will beget more success and more penetration slash presence when it comes to our great tv partner that is itv so those discussions to be frank have happened and the discussion of us doing a show in the uk that's a no-brainer
2: there's Cody Rhodes from that was Thursday, the AEW media media conference call in advance of the full gear pay-per-view. Cody mentioning some intense spreadsheets that former co-host of Russell Alex radio, Chris Harrington, better known to some as Mookie, was putting together color coded spreadsheets that I just think might might be referring to conditional formatting. One of my favorites in the Microsoft Excel, Google Sheets world. So earlier today, I posted on WrestleNomics.com, which you can read right now at uh, WrestleNomics.com, an article, an opinionated article called, There is no mainstream wrestling in the U.S. Definitely a provocative title. I admit it was intended to be a provocative title. Um, Before, so I'm going to um, talk about, what this article says, you can read it as well. And then I'm going to, this is the plan, I'm going to look at some of the responses, some of the feedback to this article and uh, discuss that. First, but first, uh, some personal reflection. All those lessons from Marshall McLuhan uh, over the years uh, come to mind at times like this, where the the media that we use to to Express various ideas. really does matter, uh, more so than the content does sometimes. Um, You can, especially as I've done this podcast every week now since March, it's become more clear to me that you can say certain things in podcast form that people will not really respond to, but you can write those things and people will respond strongly to it. Um, what do I mean by that? I guess part of it is because if you're saying something on Twitter or sharing something on Twitter, uh, people are there with their accounts and they are, they are creating the content along with you and they can easily interact with it. And, uh, I think the quote tweet has been, uh, incredibly, hmm, give me a neutral, give me a neutral word here. (laughs) I I think the quote tweet has had a lot of effect in how people interact with each other on Twitter, let's say, how people respond to various things. But for example, there are some things, let's just talk about news. There are some things which, which are, which I would call information. So not just my opinion or my speculation, but things that I know that some, that most people don't know about various news items in, in the wrestling universe of the moment. Um, I'm willing to say I'm more willing to say those things here in audio than I am willing to write it why not that this happens very often although it did just happen earlier in this program if you were paying attention but I'm far more willing to say things like that uh, in audio than in writing because in writing digital writing uh, it can be shared very easily and in audio it cannot be shared very easily that's a big part of it right and there's a there's the concern about the consequence (laughs) or what i might perceive to be the misunderstanding of what i've said and that goes for opinions too and when it comes to opinions writing just seems more hostile for some reason at least online writing certainly does. I think we've all ex- experienced that. Uh, it's very uh, easy for a conversation online, especially if it's between anonymous subjects <laughs> or, or subjects who are not, do not know each other personally. Uh, it's very easy for, for those discussions online to escalate into personal attacks and things of that nature and, and just non, non-productive, non-constructive conversations yet if you have if you have the same conversation with that person in person uh you could see it going much differently and much uh more constructively and respectfully and as we people in general uh spend more and more of our time online and spend have more and more interactions more and more of our interactions are that are that happen are happening online i think that tells you a lot about the political environment we have in increasingly lived in uh, over the last several years so the point is this goes well beyond uh, wrestling stuff and as far as wrestling comics i guess it, it's, it feels um safer for me to express opinions here than it does in writing because there's inflection there's it's it's easier to express emotions and to Use nonverbal signals that you can get just through tone of voice or intonation, even though you can't see me. I'm not doing video right now. It's easier to understand a person and their intentions when you can uh, hear or see nonverbal communications that are uh, associated with the words that are being uttered. So I have more confidence that my words will not be misinterpreted or misunderstood or misconstrued when I'm speaking in audio. And it's harder to, or at least it, it, it requires more friction to respond to somebody's, some, something that somebody said on their podcast. Obviously it happens, but it's, it's, it's a more of a chore. It requires more effort to respond to something that somebody said on a podcast versus something that someone said on social media, especially Twitter. So anyway, I wrote this article and it's got some, uh, some receptive, uh, feedback and, and it's got some, uh, critical feedback. Some people feel like this is spot on and some people feel like, yeah, this is totally wrong and it's unsatisfying. Furthermore, there are people who, who like this article and it concerns me that those people like this article. So, so we'll get into that. So That's the media. That's the message of the media. And let's get into the content. So there are two pro wrestling companies now, WB and AEW, now that have coverage in most U.S. homes. And yes, I've done the math. I think there's about 130 million U.S. homes, TNT and USA, are each in about 80 million of them. It's more than half. They're in more than half of U.S. homes. Another Impact Wrestling on Access is in about a third of U.S. homes, and about half of the cable homes. And none of them, in my view, have a mainstream creative vision. What does that mean? We'll, we'll talk about it. Instead, I think they have niche creative visions. The execution of the, those niche creative visions may gratify the key decision makers and the key performers who are involved with doing the creative. But while companies prioritize Amusement over a sports-like presentation, that is the key. I'm going to talk a lot about a sports-like presentation here. While they prioritize certain kinds of novelty over a sports-like presentation, they turn off, I believe, more fans than they attract. And, therefore, the potential market for pro wrestling remains limited. So all of what I've just said is very ambiguous, I admit. We'll unpack all that in a moment. First, let's think about how we got here and set the stage and understand the background, the history of why wrestling creative in the United States is what it is. Televised professional wrestling in the United States has been desperate, in my view, to be anything but sports for the last 30 years. At a time when he was probably still paying for TV time, Vince McMahon won the 1980s wrestling war with gimmick-heavy, creative and celebrity guest appearances and wrestling, the Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania era. And then Vince finally vanquished his rival, World Championship Wrestling, in 2001. Vince's former disciples with the creative influence at WCW, for example, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Vince Russo, and so on, they played a role in causing the company to combust from dysfunction as they poorly tried to apply Vince's vision of wrestling. Now, I know WCOE did not uh, go out of business only due to uh, whatever they were doing creatively. There were many factors of which the chaotic creative situation was just one. But it was one. So back then, at that time, 2001, uh, I I looked up the annual report uh, for WB, for fiscal year uh, 2001, fiscal year, I don't remember what month it was ending, but fiscal year 2001, WBF, before it was WBE was getting just $550,000 a week from Viacom for Raw and just $300,000 weekly for SmackDown from UPN. It's a fraction of of what they're getting now for those programs. So perhaps feeling affirmed by achieving a virtual monopoly on pro wrestling or sports entertainment, around that time McMahon's programs became increasingly scripted. Backstage skits where the wrestlers did not acknowledge awareness of the camera Uh, Those became routine on Raw and SmackDown. And since winning the wrestling war in 2001, theoretically affirming Vince's genius, WWE has doubled down on his less sports-like vision while becoming gradually less popular with consumers in the ensuing 19 years. Total nonstop action made it to high-coverage cable. Viacom spike in 2005, shortly after Raw left Viacom, returning to the USA Network. TNA made it to to spike to high-coverage cable, and they tried, but failed to compete with Vince. But they competed with Vince only on his own creative terms. The leaders at TNA largely assumed Vince's creative approach was the right and true way to appeal to the masses. His dominance of the industry must have been proof. TNA's creative endeavors, in fact, were so chronically disdained that the company had to abandon its its toxic trade name and rebrand itself Impact Wrestling in twenty seventeen. It's as if Vince has long been trying to morph his pro wrestling business, which he took over from his father, into something that transcends pro wrestling. He spent decades trying to make movies, but literally he has W studios. And he spent longer trying to turn his programs into something more like the scripted entertainment that gets more cultural respect. So what befalls W now is a tragicomic blessing. The media economy is making pro-wrestling richer than it's ever been, not because it finally recognizes wrestling as this honorable scripted entertainment, but because it identifies wrestling as at least enough of a live sport. Despite the career-long efforts of Vince and the generation of derivative minds he trained and influenced, despite their efforts to divorce their medium pro-wrestling from sport and to re-engineer it into some kind of ironic metacomedy, or quote-unquote soap opera for guys, wrestling gets to share in the billions nonetheless. Fox now awards SmackDown with $4 million per episode. That's 13 times what they were getting from UPN. USA Network now gives Raw $5 million a week, nine times what Viacom paid in 2001. I assure you that that is a lot more than just an increase uh, for inflation. TV networks are writing huge contracts for sports generally, in an eager attempt to keep the pay TV ecosystem alive in face of streaming video, and the increasing uselessness of the very invention that originally helped bring Vince to such power, the cable TV subscription. So that is a very brief history of how we got to where we are creatively and what the economic situation is right now for wrestling television. And I propose, controversially, that what's going on in Japan And what's gone on in Japan for a number of years can tell us a lot about what a United States wrestling scene that was not so influenced by one dominant company and one dominant CEO, what that scene might be like, and what it might naturally unfold into based on the, the inclinations of, of human beings in this culture, bearing in mind that yes, Japan and the United States are different countries with different cultures. Nonetheless, I think Japan is kind of a control group for the wider wrestling business. The leading company in Japan is New Japan Pro Wrestling. They are the leader by a wide margin above all other Japanese wrestling companies. New Japan, as many people know, features a straightforward sports approach without fourth-walled skits, without ironic breaks from the narrative, with few angles, few wrestling angles, and with some of the most charismatic talented wrestlers of the generation some of the most intriguing stories that have been told in wrestling in the last several years. New Japan is a mainstream product. It is the leader in its domestic market. And in fact, it's grown its consumer metrics, which is important. And we'll get to that. So I would suggest that the likely outcome for modern pro wrestling in the U.S. market is that it can be led by a major player here whose creative approach is one presenting wrestling more strongly as a sport. Yes, still predetermined, and I'm not proposing UWFI or blood sport. Not that style of presentation, but merely something closer to what New Japan does. So yes, predetermined still, spectacular still, characters still, entrances, storylines, just more sports-like and reality-based storylines a creative approach with the audacity to take itself seriously. A company where titles, wins, losses, and angles are greatly consequential, not merely the currency of a desensitized narrative. And if this is not the likely outcome, it is at least an untested creative approach to trying to capture the widest audience. Now, certainly there's an audience interested in things like comedy and wrestling, extraordinary storylines, other experiments from other mediums, things that are exemplified in WWE's cinematic matches and AEW's dinner debonair, just to name a few, those things that break greatly from wrestling as a simulated sport. There's a real and respectable audience that's interested in a new kind of flavor of wrestling. You know, it, along the lines of something that I said a few weeks ago, I think critiques like this of wrestling creative have in a way been spoiled by people who are being excessively hostile and dismissive of even the existence of a different flavor of wrestling. People who do not say that, look, there's a, a, a space for that kind of wrestling and that is respectable and and you are well within your rights to have your taste served. And And even usually this excessive point of view is couched with other things that I more outrightly disagree with like criticisms of the particular wrestling style, they're doing too much, they're not solid enough, those kinds of things. you know, a, a point of view that doesn't appreciate how wrestling has changed, the in-ring wrestling has changed, and what gets over is different today from what got over at another time. And what makes the argument that I'm making right now different is that the current creative approach doesn't get over to the extent that it is making wrestling more popular. There are not even niche brands with this kind of creative approach that I can think of and certainly within recent years in the U.S. that have grown in popularity while taking this more non-sports-like creative approach. Maybe Ring of Honor is an exception to that. I would argue part of what has made Ring of Honor What made Ring of Honor more popular in the years between roughly 2013 and 2016 or 17 is its association with New Japan. New Japan itself has become more popular in the U.S. New Japan applying a sports-like approach. Meanwhile, WWE certainly in the last few years has become less popular. We'll get to the evidence for that. Impact Wrestling has lost its TV deals and become less popular. Lucha Underground, which I thought was a fascinating and fresh approach to creative, nonetheless was not popular enough to continue to produce new seasons. But anyway, my, my point in this part is to say that the the different tastes in wrestling uh, are are welcome to be served. And there are business opportunities in which to serve them. Nobody's individual taste deserves to be disrespected. And again, I labor to say this because there are so many uh, hostile point of views that that don't say that. But I'm not sure that the leading pro wrestling companies can successfully appeal to the widest possible audience while also serving big helpings of those elements uh, that are more familiar in scripted media. And likewise, I doubt audiences who Love Cinema and and the skits of wrestling uh, will be prohibitively turned off by a wrestling product that looks more like the live sports content that the media industry increasingly values. So what's the evidence? Why do I think this is a good argument? Why do I think doing these sort of novel creative approaches to wrestling, these things that resemble a soap opera or a cinematic experience or lots and lots of comedy, why do I think that stands in the way of capturing the widest possible audience for wrestling in the U.S.? Why do I think that? Consider a recent survey conducted by UGov for Variety that found the response, quote, it seems more cartoonish than when I liked it, end quote. That was the leading reason former wrestling viewers said they stopped watching. It seems more cartoonish now than when I used to watch it consider that new Japan with its strong sports like creative has grown its consumer revenues and key metrics in recent years. And WWE with its insistence on diverging away from sports is losing in direct to consumer revenues. That's right. The same WWE that I talked about just a little while ago in this program about how they're going to be setting records for net income and for profits in this year. They're going to break that record probably again next year, but their consumer revenues are falling. How does that make sense? First of all, because there's additional pressure, rising pressure on the TV networks to hold the bundle together and to hold the bundle together, they need their most watched programming, even though their most watched programming has become less watched, but it still, it still ranks as their most watched programming. They need their most watched programming more than ever. And increasingly into the future, they need it in order to hold the bundle together in order to continue to drive cable and satellite services to continue to carry their networks and pay them carriage fees and drive their ad revenues. They need the most watch programming more than ever, so they're paying more than ever for the most watch programming, which includes wrestling, especially WWE. Now, in that time, WTV viewership has declined more than most sports. In some years, it has declined more than most TV overall, You know, a a worse rate by percentage. But WWE programming is is starting from a pretty high place, so they are still highly ranked. If you are playing the WrestleNomics drinking game, Raw is highly ranked. Raw is still highly ranked. And so is SmackDown. So core content rights fees, TV rights fees have exploded. And $100 million a year from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia helps too in non-COVID years. So their business revenues have exploded, which has little or nothing to do with what's going on as far as how many fans they have and how much they're driving consumer revenues. But despite creating this content that supposedly serves the masses, WB's ticket sales, WWE's merchandise sales, its product licensing revenues, those three areas fell in each year, 2017, 2018, and 2019, lower and lower and lower. Those are areas that are not strongly affected by new technology, new media. Sure, YouTube views, video views, and social media followers are up. But that's a new media that people are adopting. But even in the area of a new technology, W Network subscribers, streaming video. W Network paid subscribers fell throughout 2019. And they fell in Q1 2020 in a year-over-year comparison. All those revenues I mentioned come directly from the sales to consumers, to wrestling fans. Now, New Japan Pro Wrestling, on the other hand, according to their parent company, Bushi Road, New Japan's revenue in their fiscal year 2018, their revenue is made up of only 20% of media revenue. That would be from things like TV Asahi and, and New Japan World. New Japan World would be direct, direct consumer anyway. But the other 80% of their business is from events and consumer products, merchandise. Ticket sales and merchandise sales. Those are direct-to-consumer revenues. And yet, New Japan's revenue has grown every single year since 2013. Well, with the exception of this year that just ended in July for them, which took out four and a half months of events. So revenues overall are up when you've got 80% of your business coming directly from consumers. And we know that attendance is up. Total paid attendance Every single year from 2013 to 2019 was higher than the year prior. And no, this is not the numbers from the New Japan website, which are certainly inflated in the time before May 2015, and I think may include uh, comps even in the times after that. This is what their parent company, Bushiro, put in a slide for shareholders. This is a graph with, with labeled data points on it. And explicitly says number of paying visitors, paying attendees, I think that would mean. So total attendance on an annual basis for New Japan is up every year since the fiscal year 2013. Now I know what you're thinking. Maybe they're just running more events. That's why total attendance is up. And it's true that New Japan has run more events as time has gone on. But average attendance, if we take the number of events that we know New Japan ran and divide it by those total attendance numbers for each fiscal year, average attendance... ...is up as well in every year except for uh, from fiscal year 14 to fiscal year 15 where it was down. But every other year, average attendance is higher than it was in the year prior. What other evidence do we have? Google Web Search, I think, is a good reflection of how much people are thinking about various brands or topics. Searches for WE, domestically and globally, have fallen each year since 2016. And at this point, as of October... 2020, it's down for 2020 as well. Now domestically and globally, it's down at this point in 2020 for New Japan as well. I would note though, New Japan had a four and a half month period where they ran no events. WWE did not have any similar hiatus. But while domestically and globally, Google web searches for WWE are down in each year since 2016, Google web searches globally and in Japan for New Japan are up in each year, not just since 2016, but since 2010, Since 2010, web searches were higher and higher and higher each year. Google web searches for New Japan in the U.S. have been up each year since 2013 until they're up in 2018, and then they're down in 2019. I would note that that's the year that AEW launched, and then they are down again in the COVID year of 2020. So globally, while WB is a way more recognizable and popular brand on the whole, United States, globally, way more popular than New Japan. WWE towers over everybody. But the trajectory of the two brands are going in opposite directions. Again, WWE driving lower consumer revenues, New Japan driving higher consumer revenues. If Google Web Search is any indication, WWE drawing less interest, New Japan drawing more, at least until AEW launched and took uh, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks away. So again, let's talk about the alternative flavors of wrestling. Havens for these different kinds of wrestling, these more experimental kinds of wrestling, they do exist in Japan in the form of two of the most popular companies after New Japan, Dragon Gate and DDT. So no no doubt, no question, there is a place for novelty and experimentation, something different in the pro wrestling economy, if what is happening in Japan is any indication. Consider Dragon Gate with its strongly storyline-heavy content. It embraces non-traditional wrestling values. It appeals to demographics of the more mainstream approach of New Japan and of All Japan. Uh, It appeals to demographics that those wrestling brands don't serve as well. Dragon Gate creatively exercises a plethora of stipulations and gimmicks and relationship-heavy storylines. You can listen to Open the Voice Gates on this very Voices of Wrestling podcasting network for more about Dragon Gate. And then there's DDT with its wild embrace of entertainment wrestling and of comedy. You've seen the gifts. Uh, as much as any company in the world, DDT has tested the bounds of what pro wrestling is. And Dragon Gate and DDT have done well for themselves. They were promotions that were much smaller uh, 10 or 20 years ago and have become much more popular over that timeline. However, they have not been able to become the most popular. Brand of wrestling in japan the most popular brands of wrestling in japan throughout its history and currently in for this entire century so far have been wrestling brands that have a strong sports like approach whether that was new japan pro wrestling or whether that was the height of pro wrestling noah in the 2000s and clearly this is the kind of creative approach that w doesn't take and i argue in this sense w is not in fact delivering Mainstream wrestling to its audience, or mainstream sports entertainment to its audience. To the contrary, WWE is producing utterly niche programming, despite long ago earning its high-reach platforms and its universal brand recognition. But what about AEW? Isn't isn't all-elite wrestling supposed to be more sports-like? I think they promised something to that effect. And AEW does come closer, but it's still not doing quite what I would say is mainstream wrestling in the sense that of what New Japan is doing. The people behind AEW have consumed many years of WWE content, and a large portion of the people who work there, from executives to wrestlers to agents to staff, formerly worked for WWE. WWE's actually niche creative is the unquestioned presumption. It's been internalized as that's, that's what a popular wrestling company should be in the U.S. and globally. Now, certainly the people at AEW know that part of their opportunity is being an alternative to WWE. But the content AEW produces still emanates from the inescapable U.S. wrestling groupthink that prefers short-term amusement over long-term emotional investment. But it's not from a lack of promising, like a, a reformed attic U.S. wrestling brands, or, or their TV networks at least, have repeatedly given signals that they're going to be more sports-like. I think almost every major wrestling brand at one point or another has made some public statement about how they're going to have a, or at least there's been news about how there's going to be a more sports-like presentation from now on. As if there's kind of an awareness within the U.S. wrestling creative psyche that 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 might be a good path to go down. Sobriety might be a good path to go down. We know that that's the, the right thing and the healthy thing to do, but we just cannot help ourselves. Even WWE... Uh, as if anyone believed that WWE was supposed to become more sports-like following SmackDown's move to Fox in October 2019. In July 2019, Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter wrote, Fox wants everyone to promote WWE as a legitimate sport, not that the outcomes are real, but that it is a choreographed sports presentation as part of a Thursday through Sunday sports block in the fall of the NFL on Thursdays and Sundays and college football on Saturdays. Major League Wrestling, MLW, which is distributed... By being sports and disown. They market themselves as a more sports-like approach. MLW's key decision maker Kurt Bauer has said things like, Major League Wrestling is a sports-centered league. I think there are wrestling leagues that are like a variety show or a circus or over the top for those wrestling leagues where it's like you're in on the joke. End quote. MLW calls its matches fights and says it presents itself as more of a combat sport, like MMA. But MLW2 puts out content that looks like a cross between a wrestling promo and a direct-to-video movie scene. For whatever it's worth, Bauer too worked for WWE as a writer from 2005 to 2007. AEW CEO Tony Khan told fans ahead of the company's inaugural events in 2019.
4: We're going to offer a a great sporting-centric product. We're going to be focused on the athletes, focused on the work. And we have some of the best wrestlers in the world, and I really want to showcase them. But they also are some of the most dynamic personalities. I don't want people to think that this is just going to be uh, great matches. It is going to be a lot of great matches. It is going to be a lot of great matches. But it's also going to be uh, some of the most entertaining people in wrestling. And uh, it's a really great time for that, too. And these guys are going to be unleashed, and uh, you're going to see their personalities. And uh, I spend time with these women and men, and... There's some really, really great personalities in this group that are going to shine. And the shows are going to be great. And they're not going to be what people are going to expect, but we are going to take the matches seriously. Like, I want wins and losses to matter. That's the whole point in wrestling. Everybody's striving to be a champion, and your stature in the company, uh, you know, is largely marked by your win-loss record. Um, I plan to draw from a lot of what's worked, Outside of wrestling, too, in sports, I think in mixed martial arts, people have done great things. UFC's done some great things, and uh, boxing, uh, including ITV's great work. And I've attended the fights at at the O2, uh, and uh, I think the ITV does a does a great job at, with their partners as, as well. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot that could be said uh, for how we're going to cover this, the sport of wrestling. But I think one thing that uh, speaks for itself in terms of the partnership is that. Wrestling here, we're now identifying it as a sport. Um, I'm working with the sport division, whereas World of Sport was part of the entertainment division.
2: There go. So there's Tony Khan. I, I was kind of a long clip. I just want to make sure that context was there and that we're being fair. That's in an interview with ITV, which is the AEW TV broadcaster in the UK, which is why he's talking about ITV at times there. But while there will be personalities, AEW has promised to be a sports-centric product they're identifying wrestling as a sport. Uh, also there were AEW press releases ahead of the first double or nothing pay-per-view with sentences like quote focused on producing fast-paced high-action competitions AEW offers less scripted soapy drama and more athleticism and real sports analytics bringing a legitimacy to wrestling that it has not previously had and quote. And it is fair to say AEW has done some of that. Wins and losses matter a lot more in AEW than WWE for example. But AEW has also had, I think, its, its fair share of things that look like acting scenes, most recently things involving Miro with video games, and no one will soon forget the steak dinner with Chris Jericho and MJF. At Thursday's AEW media conference call, uh, Cody Rhodes was asked if creative direction for AEW that was described early on has changed.
0: When AEW first
3: launched, you talked often in interviews about how it was going to be a sports-centric product. Um, I'm curious, has that approach changed at all over this past year with more things like promos getting added in and the MJF, Chris Jericho, Dinner Debonair segment we saw a few weeks back? I look back at what I said, and, and sometimes I... I... I chuckle a bit because I hit things so hard before the first AEW show because we, no matter what we were aiming for and no matter what we envisioned, you don't know until you know. You don't know until the lights are on and the red, the red light is, is blinking and, and you're off and beaming across television sets to the world. When I speak of sports-centric wrestling, I speak of the wrestling that I grew up on, Jim Crockett Promotions, World Championship wrestling. Uh, WCCW, I mean everything that was available to me in the South and just that that library that still currently exists. I also speak of the current uh, MMA scene with what UFC is doing, the current boxing scene in terms of unscripted promos and drama that is existing based on who the people really are or who the people want you at home to think they are. So when it comes to sports-centric wrestling, I consider everything I do, me personally, to be sports-centric. I honor my own identity by presenting myself as such because that is who I am. You talk about Dinner Debonair. That is who Chris Jericho is. There, there are different flavors of ice creams that we serve at AEW, and it is very funny to me some of the modern, I, I don't know if pundits is the term, the wrestling journalism that tells you it has to all be one way, um, that hasn't worked for anyone you've told, that it has to all be one way. So why tell us such? It's very much different flavors. Chris represents his brand incredibly well. The meta style that the Young Bucks have is very well. The strong style approach that Kenny is bringing back into his singles uh, repertoire, very much uh, himself. Honestly, so many different flavors. But I can always stand by what I said then and and, and very much still – be able to say it now because what I do as a wrestler, what Cody Rhodes does when he's on screen will always be sports-centric because that's the type of wrestling I love and that's the type of stories that I personally like to tell.
2: The seven-minute musical comedy involving Chris Jericho and MJF on the October 12th episode of AEW Dynamite got rave reviews from some fans. I was happening to be watching live and thought it was genuinely creative and funny and intelligent. All of which I think is rare for comedy and wrestling. Or musicals, for that matter. MGF revealed himself to be a great singer. And there may be a time and place to do this kind of thing, even in a sports-centric kind of wrestling product. But maybe not within the main show, within the main narrative, suddenly breaking into song. As well done in its own right as it may have been. But why? Plenty of people seem to have liked it. I just told you I liked it. But Le Dinner Debonair drove viewers away. 15% of the total audience tuned out before it was over. It was a 7-minute segment. According to numbers that uh, Wade Keller read on one of his audio shows, the segment at 9.19 started out with 782,000 viewers and finished with 665,000. So again, down 15%. The average growth or loss for viewership in the 6th quarter where that segment appeared, the 6th quarter for AEW on average throughout the just over one year that the show has been on the air. On average, the sixth quarter declines by 4%. Again, this declined by 15%. That's 4% for both the total audience and the key demo. Very similar. And despite Chris Jericho dubbing himself the Demo God, 11% of adults 18-49 to 49, tuned out throughout the course of the seven-minute segment as well. P18-49 to 49 at 9.19pm was at 402,000 when the segment ended at 9.25pm the key demo audience was down to three hundred and fifty-seven thousand. Again, a, a loss of eleven percent. When normally quarter six loses four percent, a loss of eleven when it normally loses four. Total audience lost fifteen percent when it normally loses four. So, a sports-centric approach is most pronounced in AEW and the storylines that Cody's involved in, which is more or less what he said in the comments that we just listened to. I'm not quite sure what he was trying to say yesterday in, in the comment that we listen to you know, he may just be doing spin and defending his company and sometimes you just say things to get through interviews i'm well aware but since we're the same age i'm sure he knows as well as i do that during our adult lifetimes there's never really been a strongly sports-centric wrestling product with high reach distribution in the u.s it's not only possible that that kind of approach uh, if it was applied more broadly would strongly succeed economically it's never been even given the chance to fail, that creative approach. And when sports have never been more economically valuable than they are now, I think now is certainly the time for someone to at least try. So that's essentially what's said in the article. You can read it again for yourself at WrestleAnonics.com. Again, the title is, There is no mainstream wrestling in the U.S., So I want to talk about some of the feedback I got. Again, this was uh, divisive, probably partly due to the title, which I'm now questioning whether it was not only provocative, but clickbaity. But uh, some of the responses, obviously there was a lot of, there was some positive response to it, and that's appreciated. Um, That does my ego a a great deal of good. Actually, except for uh, one person who liked this article, who said, really good read here was one at The Real Disco, which both surprises me and concerns me. Uh, he's a public figure, though. Right? I, I will, don't worry, I will not be naming anybody else who uh, who gave me feedback here. Uh, without getting into a whole other thing, I, I've disagreed greatly with some of the things that Glenn Globerti has said, online or otherwise. Uh, there, there is some feedback with swear words in it, which I will not be reading, but uh, uh, someone wrote, um, I think this is a bad take, pro wrestling in the US is about stories and characters. Without those two things, the medium is not going to find a wide audience. And and I would agree with with that. Well, ex- except for this is the, a bad take, except for that part. <laughs> you know, I agree that pro wrestling in the US is about stories and characters. It's it's about stars and the journeys toward big matches between big stars. And without that wrestling isn't going to find a wide audience. I I I don't think that what I was saying was inconsistent with what this person is saying. But I can see how people can hear a sports-like approach and think that that means a, a wrestling style or creative style that is totally sanitized of charisma and personality and storylines and things of that nature. And again, if we use New Japan as the exemplar here, I think New Japan has done a great job of telling some of the most Deep and resonating stories and effective stories uh, that that anybody in pro wrestling has told uh, over the last 5-10 years. And with very charismatic personalities as well. This is the promotion that uh, has featured Hiroshi Tanahashi, Shinsuke Shinsuke Nakamura, Tetsuya Naito, Kenny Omega, and so on. And I see no reason why a US-based promotion could not uh, tell stories as well and as effectively at a minimum. And accentuate rather than undermine personalities uh, for a U.S. audience with a sports-like approach with full entrances and interviews before matches and maybe rather than a soliloquies in the ring standing there with a microphone maybe there's post-match interviews in the ring maybe there's post-match angles at times rarely and for maximum effect I mean I know there's a lot of ways to interpret what I'm saying but I don't think what I'm I'm, uh, saying is that dry or radical. Okay. Someone else said, a a thing I wish this addressed though is the ride of wrestling to once being mainstream and how that happened. And not just the fall after WCW folded during the years, WCW and raw built audiences. I wouldn't say I thought they were particularly sports based, but they could be a remnant of viewing trends in the nineties versus now that I don't have any context for personally or from the article. Okay. That's a good point to raise. And, and again, I agree with the basics of what you're saying here, uh, in, in particular, uh, the part where you say, because during the years WCW and Raw built audiences, I wouldn't say I thought they were particularly sports-based. They definitely, um, especially in the late 90s, they weren't. The you know, things in the middle 90s are are sort of traveling on the spectrum, I think, toward a less sports-based uh, creative approach. So I, I guess what I what I think, and maybe I could have, Spelled out more clearly is that a sports-based approach is appropriate today given the set of evidence that we have in front of us. That is, TV networks value live sports more than ever, so serve them something that's more live sports-like. We have some evidence that wrestling fans have been turned off because of the diversion away from a sports-like presentation. We have really the only major wrestling brand that has become more popular in its domestic market. And to an extent in the U S and Japan pro wrestling has become more popular. That's the only one on a major level. And they've done it with a creative approach that is more sports like than any other major company in the world. So I, I, I don't know if I'm getting to everything that's being asked about here, but but I think that's a, a good point to raise and a clarification that I would like to make Next, well, I guess I'll just use first names. The first one was from Bella. That was from Chris. This is from Joshua, who said, uh, this is impossible to quantify in a meaningful way until someone makes an American New Japan Pro Wrestling and it succeeds or it doesn't. It's basically trying to prove a negative. And, and again, to an extent, I, mean, I agree with what you're saying. This is impossible to, well, I don't know if it's possible to quantify. I think there's evidence to, to back up the argument that this is a good direction to go in, economically speaking. Uh, mainly for the reasons I just mentioned a a moment ago, that New Japan is the only company that's really increased its consumer revenues recently. And I agree that until someone makes a a U.S. wrestling product that is more sports-like, we won't know whether or not it can succeed or or not because no one has tried. And that's that's kind of one of the points that I was trying to make. All right, well, I I guess that's sufficient. People in the replies to Disco Infernos are questioning whether or not he actually read the article. <laughs> I think I think insinuating this goes against some of his core beliefs. But anyway, that's all I have for this week. And actually, I guess if I could say one more thing, if I could raise some evidence against interest, uh, never trust anybody that doesn't raise evidence, evidence against interest, by the way. What I often think of or call the promoter's sin, This this perspective that I'm laying out, Does kind of sound like it might be guilty of the promoter's sin, doesn't it? Uh, What's my favorite uh, era of wrestling for a given promotion of all time? 1990s, all Japan, and and nothing was really more, uh, short of work shoot style promotions, nothing was really more sports like than that. So, am I just committing the promoter's sin of trying to project my own personal taste onto the widest supposed taste? There's the vulnerability. But anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks to Post Wrestling for having me on. Thanks, to, I think I think these people last time. Ah, thanks to ProWrestling.net Jason Powell for having me on. Thanks to John Pozorowski of the Two Man Podcast for having me on to talk about the business and well, not just WWE business, all of wrestling business. A well-rounded conversation about everything going on in pro wrestling and a little bit about me. WrestlingLogs.com is an ad-free website. Almost everything there is not behind a paywall. It is free for anyone to read with no ads, no pop-ups, no things you have to X out of. That is because of listeners like you who support this program and the writing that I do on WrestleNomics.com. I think we've got some sound quality I'm pretty happy with now, too. You can support if you're not supporting already. Go to patreon.com slash You can support for $5 a month or $10 a month. And I will reinvest your contribution into doing better and better work. So that's all for now. You can follow Russellomics at Russellomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston. And I'm in a way better mood than I was when I started recording this. And I'll talk to you next time.